Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. If you could stand, we'll begin in prayer. Since we are in the octave of the holy transfiguration of our Lord, and we are basking and rejoicing in the revelation of God's inner light to mankind on Mount Tabor, I will, uh, will, will, our prayer will be the prayer that is sung on the feast day. Blessed is our God at all times, of now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. On the mountain you were transfigured, O Christ our God, and your disciples saw as much of your glory as they could hold so that when they beheld thee crucified, they would know that thou suffered willingly and would proclaim to the world that thou art in truth the splendor of the Father. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Our speaker, our speaker uh, is a deacon in the Melkite Greek Catholic Church in America. He received his master's in theology from Notre Dame Graduate School of Christendom College uh, and a Ph.D. in biblical studies at Catholic University of America. He's a full-time lecturer in sacred scripture and biblical languages at St. Patrick's Seminary of the Archdiocese of San Francisco uh, an adjunct lecturer in sacred scripture for Notre Dame Graduate School of Christendom College. He also teaches regularly for our Magdala Apostolate for uh, the sisters that we offer free education for. Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Deacon Sebastian Carnazzo. Okay, our topic today is biblical apologetics, and as my brother uh, asked, do you have your Bibles? I looked around, I was very impressed with how many Bibles I saw, but I'll tell you what, I was really impressed with Kathy's seat here. <laughs> She's got three Bibles, she didn't hold them all up. <laughs> uh, I've known Kathy for a long time, we're good friends, so she doesn't mind me pointing that out in fact is that your is that the greek interlink oh i got one in my bag the same one <laughs> wait a minute this is mine <laughs> all right, just making sure all right so so you all have your bibles uh, a word about your bibles you've heard this lecture before from me every time i come to speak i always say a few things about your bibles if uh, I see a lot of wonderful Bibles out there, what you want to make sure you do is as you take notes in your Bible today uh, or in the future or in the past, hopefully you've, you've already taken wonderful notes in your Bibles, you'll notice that if you are using a paperback Bible, it's going to eventually fall apart on you. I remember giving a lecture one time, uh, it was in Nebraska, and there was a, 
an older gentleman in the front row and at a parish, and he, his Bible, it was an old, uh, it was a New American, I think it was this, this version right here, and it was falling apart worse than this, and, uh, and it was so sad to see it because I could tell that the, the sections were coming out, the glue was over, this thing wasn't going to last him more than another year or two. Uh, so uh, I would strongly encourage you to get a real bound Bible with either a hard cover or a leatherette soft cover. A hard cover is nice because, although this one just came out, uh, they usually stay in a Bible cover more easily. So if you like Bible covers with zippers and putting your pens in their things, a hard cover will stay in there when you open up. A soft cover won't stay in the covers uh, so well, but a soft cover like this is nice. Also, if you don't carry it around the cover because it opens up nice and lays on the table, things like that. So it depends. It also looks great when you're up there if you ever become a televangelist. It, it, it's hypnotizing. So I remember one time I, I went with a friend of mine. He was a fallen away Catholic. Uh, I'll probably mention him at some, uh, some point today. Uh, to his new uh, spiritual home of sorts, his Seventh-day Adventist church. He invited me to go. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go. Uh, you come to my church, I'll go to yours. So Saturday morning when they had their service, I went. And, and after, it was an hour and a half, two-hour service. It went on and on, and um, which wouldn't be so bad if it was good liturgy, but it wasn't even liturgy. So, and after the service, he said, wasn't that the most biblical service you've ever attended? And I said, uh, well, actually, Joe, it wasn't. I think it was the least biblical service I've ever attended, actually. What do you mean? He said, well, well, he was reading the Bible the whole time. And I said, no, he wasn't. I had my Bible open, and I was waiting and waiting. And he quoted one verse from one psalm in the whole hour and a half, two-hour service. No, I, I recall he had the Bible he was reading. No, he wasn't. What he was doing was a common trick of the televangelist. So, my friends, what I want you to understand today is that our missionary work in South America is so important, okay? We need to make sure we're proclaiming the Word of God as we convert all of these people from the historic Catholic Church to our modern church we invented 10 years ago. And, on, and the whole time, it was flopping up and down like that, right? Especially if it's shiny. Oh, watching. Okay. <laughs> And just put the money in the basket. Okay. So the leatherette is nice for that. But the, so a leatherette or a hardcover in a, in, a, in a case, I really strongly recommend a, a, a putting it in a case because then you can put some pins in there. This Bible went, some of you who were on the pilgrimage last time to the Holy Land went with me, and I'm going to take it with me again. This Bible's lasted me a long time because I've kept it in a, in a case I can put pins in here, markers, Bible maps, whatever I want. Okay? Anyway, whatever the case may be, a paperback is the glue dries out on you. The paper is usually of lesser quality and will eventually fall apart. And you don't want, after 10, 15 years of writing your Bible, devotional reading and study, for that Bible to fall apart on you. This is the most important book you own. Right? It's the most important book you own. So make sure you... Invest in a, in a good Bible. You can find them at Paschal Lamb in 
in Fairfax and other online and other resources. Okay, if you have any questions about that, uh, you can come up and ask me at the break. And oh, I'll point out one last one. I love this little Bible. I can't read it because my eyes are going. Uh, but there's very small print. But this is a wonderful little pocket edition from Oxford Press of the Catholic RSV. Okay, so our topic today, biblical apologetics. So you all have your Bibles. All right. And so what are we dealing with? We're talking about biblical apologetics. We're not talking about Christian apologetics. Christian apologetics is the defense, apologia, apologetics comes from a Greek word, apologia, a defense, explanation. Christian apologetics is explaining the Christian faith to a non-Christian. How do you explain, defend, introduce the Christian faith to a Muslim, a Jew, a Hindu, a Buddhist. That's Christian apologetics. We're not dealing with that today. Maybe we can do that another time. And it's actually not my area of expertise. I'm sure you could, uh, my brother could find you a wonderful expert in that subject. Today we're talking about biblical apologetics. Biblical apologetics. And in this, in this field, what we're doing is learning how to explain your Catholic faith, the historic Catholic and Orthodox, the apostolic faith to our separated brethren that have arisen since the Protestant Reformation. Okay, so what we have in common with our separated brethren from the Protestant Reformation is the Bible, at least most of it. And so you can use the Bible as a means to bring this individual into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ through his apostolic church. Okay? You can't use your Bible so much in Christian apologetics. You can't walk up to a Buddhist and say, See, Jesus is the Savior. doesn't mean anything to a Buddhist. But that does mean something to someone who believes that that book you have in your hand is the Word of God. So this is biblical apologetics. So the first thing we're going to talk about here is the dynamics of a debate. So if you turn to page two of your notes, if someone asks you a question, you're uh, walking out of your parish on Sunday morning or you're in Walmart or something, something indicates to somebody else that you are a Catholic and they ask you a question. Maybe you're at a family reunion. Maybe you're walking your dog. Whatever the case may be, they, they know that you're a Catholic and they ask you a question. Typically what a Catholic wants to do is answer the question. Right? Why do you, why do you have those, those icons or those statues in your church? Well, because... Why do you believe in the real presence of the Eucharist? Well, because in John 6, Jesus said, how many have done that? A lot of people. Uh, Why do you believe that Mary is so special? Well, because, that's a big mistake. The dynamics of a debate. If you watch professional debaters, 
They're in control of the conversation. And if you are answering questions, you are not controlling the conversation. Anyone ever had Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door? Next time they come, you better be ready. Watch them. Study what they're doing. They're professional debaters. Well, I guess amateur. They don't do this for a living. But they, they have trained themselves in the debate techniques. Good morning. How are you today, sir? Oh, I'm okay. I see there's a statue out here. Are you a Catholic? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, would you like a bit of literature from us today? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, sure. No, I don't think so. I'm a Catholic. Well, it won't hurt you. Take it. Take it. Oh, okay. Uh, would you like to read it? I, I, I think. I don't, I'm not sure. They're asking the questions the whole time. Do you have a Bible, sir? Uh, I'm a Catholic. So, so they go and they get it. You, know, you go get your Bible. You blow off the dust. You open it up. And they say, can you please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5? Uh, no. Uh, yes. Do you know where it is? The whole time they're asking questions. And you are answering. You want to make sure that you're in control of the conversation. The person who is asking the questions is driving the bus. This is a classic debate technique. Have you ever read the rabbinic literature? Rabbi Avraham said to Rabbi Yaakov, Why did Moses go up the mountain? Rabbi Yaakov said to Rabbi Avraham, Why was there a mountain? <laughs> because he wants to take control of the conversation. Okay. Now, when you're doing this, you're not using deceptive debate techniques. You're being efficient with the time that God has given you with this individual. Okay? The question the person might be asking you is typically irrelevant to the conversation. You think giving an answer to that question is important, but the person may not really know what is the real important question to be asking. And so if you spend all of your time answering questions that are secondary, tertiary, or irrelevant, you're not moving anywhere. And so what you need to do is take control of the conversation by answering a question with a question. You want to turn the conversation around. Again, these are not deceptive techniques. You're simply modeling your conversation after the techniques of our Lord. Right? And the Pharisees said to Jesus, Why do disciples eat with hands unwashed that is defiled? And Jesus said, Well, because we didn't have any soap. <laughs> and I ask you, Why do you? Right? Tell us, are you the Messiah or not? I'll answer that question if you answer my question. The baptism of John, what is it of the earth or from heaven? Look in the New Testament and you'll find that when someone asks Jesus a question, typically, if it's a debate kind of situation, he answers with a question. And he takes control of the conversation and redirects it to something more important. Not washing of hands and the tradition of the elders, but you've forsaken the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Right? So, 
Jesus redirects the conversation with the Pharisees to something much more important than whether or not you're going to wash your hands. Now, it's important to wash your hands. I highly recommend it before lunch. And Jesus would encourage you along those lines. However, the Pharisees were asking a question about wash of hands concerning ritual cleanness, ritual purity. And ritual purity, well, an interesting theological debate in the first century, is irrelevant compared to the more important question that Jesus asked them, and that is the relevance of the Word of God. So, redirecting the conversation, the dynamics of a debate. I'll go over this all day today with you. This is the, the first point is to understand you're going to be, you want to redirect the conversation so that you're in control. Okay, now, seven steps to sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. Where does that come from? Does anyone know? What language is that? Spanish? Latin. Well, at least it was until the word processor got a hold of it. So, Latin. This comes from, this is one of the, the sayings of the Protestant Reformation. Sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia. These were, these were important topics that were being discussed during the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. Modern English translation, the Bible alone. Seven steps to Sola Scriptura. So, we're going to look at a technique here of how you can redirect the conversation to the most essential topic, and that is Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. You might think that the key to bringing your Baptist friend back into the uh, apostolic tradition, the apostolic church, is to put a rosary in their hand. There are way more rosaries hanging from the walls for sale in the National Shrine, I mean the Episcopalian one, in Washington, D.C., that way, than in the Catholic shrine in Washington, D.C. Have you ever been there in that basement? It's a Catholic Walmart. <laughs> you walk down into the basement of that church, it's a massive basement, the size of the, of the National Cathedral. Again, I'm talking about the Episcopalian Church. And the, the walls are lined with statues of Mary and Joseph, St. Francis, and, and, and rosaries, and you go into the Catholic shrine, there's just a little store there to buy a few things. Okay? There are Anglicans who pray the rosary. I was just reading the other day about a Methodist church. On the feast of, the, of, the, of Our Lady of Guadalupe, the men of the Methodist parish take the statue of, that they have of Mary that's in the sanctuary there in their Methodist church, and they carry it on their shoulders in procession around the church. So Marian devotion or a rosary or a statue of Mary in their front lawn is not going to convert them, right? There are Methodists who pray the rosary. There are Anglicans. and You might think, well, what about the Eucharist? If I could convince that individual about the Eucharist. While there was debate about the nature of the Eucharist during the Reformation, for the most part, the early Reformers 
had a relatively, relatively speaking, compared to today, sound understanding of the real presence. They used different language, and there were some fine-tuning issues. But for a period, especially the early period of American Protestantism and, and later part of, of European Protestantism, there was an outright denial of the real presence of the Eucharist. But today, among evangelicals, there was a rise, again, in the belief in the real presence of the Eucharist. You can turn your Protestant friend to John 6, and they'll say, I know, I love this chapter. Well, what do you believe about the Eucharist? I believe it's the real body and blood of Jesus. Now, they may not have it in their church, but they think they do. There, you know, among Lutherans, Missouri Synod, and especially very traditional Lutheran parishes, they uh, kneel at the communion rail to receive communion on the tongue. They uh, uh, kneel when they come back from communion in their pews, praying. They have adoration and benediction with a monstrance. Yeah. I could go on and on. Okay. What you might think would be the most essential topic is often not. What is the essential topic? What is the heart of the Reformation, the, the root of the tree, is the error of Martin Luther, sola scriptura, the Bible alone. If you can convince your Baptist friend of the error of that error, first then you will most likely have a relatively efficient and quick conversion process on your hands. However, if you handle this topic and then that topic, the Eucharist, Mary, statues, whatever it is, the bishop, you may have a very long conversion process on your hand. And I can tell you this through a lot of reading and listening to conversion stories. And a brief word on that. What we're doing today is just introducing the topic, okay? So hopefully this is an, uh, the beginning of the study of this subject for you. I recommend you continue to study this, continue to educate yourself if you want to be an uh, efficient apologist, an efficient tool of God in this field. And some very important resources are, first and foremost, listening to conversion stories, listening to the stories of individuals who have already gone through this process, okay? Some classic examples that you probably know of. Scott Hahn's conversion story that's on a CD. I think he gave it for Catholics United for the Faith for the first time or something. St. Joseph's Communications put it out. That little CD, what's that? Lighthouse. Lighthouse. That, little, that little CD has done amazing things. It doesn't go into all sorts of different doctrinally profound issues. and He just tells his story. And the critical point of the story is when the banjo started to play. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, uh, the story, that's a made, made note. I can see everybody checking their cell phones now. I checked mine just before. So let's take a moment. We can turn off our cell phones. All right, so uh, the, um, uh, some resources, listening to conversion stories. If you're talking to somebody, which you'll find, you'll learn how to find these things out in a second, uh, who is a lifelong evangelical of some sort, 
or a lifelong, just historic Protestant. Well, they need to hear Scott Hahn's conversion story because that's who Scott Hahn was. You might be talking to a friend who is a fallen away Catholic and is now a Protestant minister or who knows what. Well, they need to hear Jeff Cavan's conversion story because that's Jeff Cavan's story. You might be talking to a Pentecostal. You might be talking... And so what you need to do is know the various conversion stories that are out there. They're on CDs, they're on, in books, and you need to have a collection, about five or six, ten or so of them, and you'll find them very useful to have. Keep, it, keep them in stock, a couple copies of each one, and as you come upon different uh, individuals who you find match up with one of these stories, you give them that book, you give them that CD. I like the CD version because they can put it in the car and they can listen to it, although today I guess there's not even there no CD players in some cars now. But, um, but uh, CDs or audio file of some sort, but the book is a wonderful resource. Okay, So conversion stories. Other great resources, just apologetic manuals. The best that I know of out there that is in print is a book by Carl Keating. Carl Keating, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. Catholicism and Fundamentalism by Carl Keating. He is the past president of Catholic Answers. He did wonderful work when he was leading that organization. I remember that book. I gave that to a friend of mine. Uh, he didn't have much time to read. He was very busy. He'd get home late. Uh, and his wife was an evangelical, but she was. we'd been talking for a while, and she wanted to come into the Catholic Church. But she said, you're going to have to talk to my husband. Well, he he doesn't have a lot of time. So I gave him one book, a book by Patrick Madrid called Where Is That in the Bible? It's got a very angry-looking man on the cover holding his Bible like this. It's a horrible book. Uh, Henry Henry read the book, and I asked him a couple days later, how is your reading going? He said, I I, I can't deal with that thing. The man's too angry. The, The tone of the book, the way it's written, didn't do anything for him. I said, well, I've, I've got another book. It's a lot thicker, but I, I wanted to give you, I know you're busy, so let me go get it. So I went and I got Carl Keating's book, which is two, three times as thick. I said, I, it's a lot here. He said, okay, I'll try it. A couple days later, uh, Henry, how's your reading coming along? He said, oh, I finished it. Now, this man only has like 10 minutes in the evening when he gets home at night. So he's reading, you know, he's on his bed stand. He said, I, I read it. I said, well, what do you think about it? He said, well, it was interesting. Any questions? Nope. Well, um, uh, what do you want to, how can I help you? And he said, well, I think it's time for me to come back to the church. He was a following Catholic. He just read this book. It was done. It was done. Okay? This is a wonderful resource. Uh, So Carl Keating, Catholicism, Fundamentalism, it was the first apologetic manual I read many years ago. And there are other books like that, but that, that is, if you have that book, and you have four or five, six conversion stories. Uh, David Curry's book, Born Fundamentalist, Born Again Catholic. That's a nice book if you're talking to a, uh, someone uh, of maybe a Pentecostal background or something or a fundamentalist background. Anyway, we can talk some more about this resource if you have any specific questions. But you need to know about the individual. And we're going to talk about how to get there in a second. And then you need to know what, what is the right medicine to apply. Right? What are the resources they need that you need to put in their hand? 
All right, so then, someone comes to you and asks you a question. This is page three of your notes. Someone asks you a question. Why this? Or what do you believe about that? Or whatever the case may be. What is the first thing you should do? Well, I tricked you. What is the first thing you should do? Let me give you an example. You're a Catholic? Do you, why do you believe that funny stuff about Mary? What funny stuff about Mary are you talking about? Okay, good. She's, answer, she's asking, you know, direction. She, I, I asked her, what do you believe about Mary? She said, well, what, what stuff about Mary? So she changed the, the, the dynamics, right? But what is, the, what is really the first thing you should do? I would, I would probably want to do a bullet prayer to the Holy Spirit and say, That's right. Jesus, please show me how to go with this. Very good. Say that again, nice and loudly. Okay. Short, short burst of prayer to the Holy Spirit saying, How would you like me to handle this? Right. You say a bullet prayer? <laughs> it was a bullet <laughs> prayer. Right? So that was it. That's exactly it. What, so the question is, what, uh, what should you first do? The answer, pray. Right? Pray. You are going to do nothing to help this person. If you're not praying, the Holy Spirit is the author of the conversion, not your intellect. Okay? You can have the fanciest arguments. You can quote Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. You can do all that stuff, and it will do nothing. Nothing. Unless the Holy Spirit is working in that conversation. So the first thing you need to do is pray. And I like that bullet prayer. I've never heard that, that saying before. Uh, what I like to do, and I find myself in a situation like this, someone asks me a question, I, I feel a, a, a situation arising, I, I say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is a, an Eastern prayer. It's very easy. It's, it's, it's something we, we have memorized. Uh, I also like, if I have a few seconds, to pray something like this, Lord Jesus, let your light shine through me. Let me be a window through which your light can shine upon this individual. Put your words in my mouth. Use my mouth. Use me to speak to this person. Something like that. You may only have a brief second, and the person's asking you a question, and you want to pay attention to them. So, but you need to say some sort of heartfelt prayer. And pray through the entire conversation. And when you're done, that's the time to really start praying as well. Okay? Pray, pray, pray. The first thing you do, pray. Okay? Number one. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 13. All right, verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. But notice the second part of that verse. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. That's where the Holy Spirit's going to come in. Okay, with gentleness and reverence. So we want to always do that first part. To give a defense for the hope that is in us. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But the second part of that verse, do it with gentleness and reverence. If this person does not see the love of Jesus Christ in your face, if they do not hear the love of Jesus Christ in your words, you will be doing nothing to help them. Mark Brumley, who used to work for Catholic Answers, he did a wonderful little tape recording this is how long ago it was, a little cassette called Fundamentalism. He's now the editor for Ignatius Press. But I remember he said at the end of that, of that lecture on 
biblical apologetics, he said, Catholic apologetics or biblical apologetics is actually pretty easy if you're a Catholic. If you're a Baptist, it's very difficult because you have to do all sorts of gymnastics to make the Bible say what you want it to say. But it's actually pretty easy once you know the right techniques and you've got, you know, most of it, you know, memorized the, the basic verses. He said it can become very easy for you to fall into the trap of just trying to win the debate because it is so easy. And the problem is, is that you win the debate but lose the soul. You can win the debate but lose the soul. You want to win the soul for Christ. That's your object. The debate is secondary. Okay? You're not trying to prove them wrong and you right, but rather you're trying to bring them into a close relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what you're trying to do. So number one, you pray. Number two, introduce yourself. Introduce yourself. You may not even know the person's name. They may not know your name. Now, if you're at a family reunion or something, you may know who they are, your cousin or something like that. But if you don't know the individual, make sure you get their name. And a great way to do this is just reach out your hand. Someone comes up and asks you a question. You, you put out your hand and you say, Hi, hi, my name is, my name is Sebastian. What's your name? Kathy. Kathy. <laughs> great. Nice to meet you, Kathy. So, so you want to reach out, grab their hand, hold that hand, that human contact. You want to build relationship right from the start. You pray, and then you start building that relationship. Hold their hand, ask them their name, introduce yourself, okay? And then, so that's number two, introduce yourself. Start building the relationship. How are you today? That will begin to diffuse some of the tension that is usually there when someone comes and asks you a question of an apologetic nature. Third, sit down. Find a place to sit down. Have you ever seen a boxing match when the two boxers are sitting on stools? No, they go to the stools to rest, right? A boxing match is in the standing position, not sitting. Think the last heated argument you had with somebody. Say a prayer, asking for forgiveness. But think of the last heated argument. Did you... Were you sitting on your lazy boy with your feet up or were you standing? When you're sitting on the lazy boy, you're relaxed. So you want to sit down. Find a place to sit. If you're in Walmart and someone's asking you a question, then go to the, if you're super Walmart, go to the super McDonald's. Just don't buy the super size stuff. <laughs> sit down and find a bench and have a cup of coffee, preferably decaf. You don't want to escalate the situation certainly not a supersized caffeinated coffee so sit down if you're somewhere else find a park bench but find a place to sit down okay so that's number three sit down it will diffuse the tension it will change the nature of the conversation number four gather information gather information so you're going to be asking a lot of questions at this point. 
You sit down, and the first thing you want to ask is, are you a Christian? So your friend will say, Bob, uh, Bob, are you, a, are you a Christian? You know his name. You're now sitting down. Well, yes, I am. Thank God. That is wonderful news. And it is, right? If this individual is a, is a baptized Christian... This is, this, is, this is good news, right? Then you want to ask, where do you go to church? Bob might say he goes to the local Baptist church, right? The Baptist church of the Berean believers of Washington, D.C. Okay. Then you want to ask, how long have you been a member of that church? You want to find out if Bob has been there his whole life? Is his grandparents built the church? Or did Bob just join that church? Now, if Bob just joined that church, you want to ask Bob, well, where were you before? Well, I was at the, I was at the Pentecostal church. Oh, well, what about before that? Well, I was Jehovah's Witness. What about that? I was a Catholic. Oh. Now, you might have a church hopper on your hands. They might, a church hopper is someone who's jumping from church to church to church. Sometimes because they're searching for truth. Sometimes they just like the spiritual high and the emotional high of, of people getting excited about their conversion. Hopefully you're dealing with someone who's actually seeking, seeking information. I remember talking to somebody one time at a wedding reception and after an hour or two of talking, I said, so where are you going to church uh, tomorrow? And he said, uh, I, I don't know. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? Because this was a Saturday night. And now he was a very serious Christian. Where, you, you don't... You don't know where you're going to church, you and your wife? We haven't decided yet. What do you mean you haven't decided yet? Saturday night. I said, well, well. I said, are you church hopping? He said, yes. So I said, well, come to my church tomorrow. My son was being baptized by Father Joseph. Wow, that guy had a great experience. We put it right there in front of the baptismal font. I think he got wet. So ask about the church they belong to, how long they've been there. And then you want to ask them, is it a nice church? Ask about the church that they attend right now. Why did you join this church? Or if they've been there their whole life, tell me about the church. Ask them anything you can learn about it. How long are your services? Is there a nice pastor? What's his name? Where did he go to seminary? Ask as many questions as you can. Does he teach the Bible well? Is he in the Word? Ask as many questions as you can. Learn as much as you can about this person's ecclesial experience, their history, their present situation. And if you know anything about that church, say something positive. There's always something positive to say. Uh, you might, If it's a Lutheran Missouri Synod, you can say, Oh, wow, I've heard about their liturgy. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, it, you may have just seen their church down the street. You say... Oh, that's that white one with the big steeple. Yes. I've always admired the juniper hedges in the front. There's always something positive to say. Be truthful. Find something that's true and positive. Okay? You want to build relationship. All right? And then you want to get back to the original question. So the person asked you, why do you Catholics fill in the blank? 
Okay? Whatever the case may be. Why do you believe this? Why do you have this in your church? Why do you do that as a Catholic? So you want to get back to that question. Now, Bob, when you walked up to me in the parking lot and were swinging your Bible at me, you, um, you asked me about Mary. What was that question? Could you, uh, you know, ask me that again? Yeah, you, um, I was wondering about why you believe that Mary is such a big deal or something like that. Well, so you, you heard the question again, and now you want to redirect the conversation because I told you the topic of Mary or the real presence of the Eucharist or all, these are important topics, but they are not primary to the problem you're dealing with. So you need to redirect the conversation to Sola Scriptura. And then you can deal with those topics in another conversation later on. So how do you do that? You, uh, you just state plainly. So number five, just so we don't get hurt, number five is get back to the original question. And then number six is redirect. Redirect the conversation. And you do this in this way. Okay, well, so you have a question about Mary and our understanding as Catholics about Mary. It sounds like, and I'll bet there are a number of other questions like this, that the real problem is that I believe things that are found nowhere in the Bible. Is that the problem? That I believe things that are found nowhere in the Bible? Is that a problem for you? Now, Catholics avoid this like the plague. They don't want to say this. They're afraid to say that. Even in Catholic apologetics, I've sometimes seen this, trying to pretend as if we're sola scriptura Catholics or something. Look, let me be plain with you, Bob. I believe lots of stuff that is found nowhere in the Bible. Do you find that as a problem? Stuff about Mary, stuff about the Bishop of Rome, stuff about uh, sacraments. Now, many things we believe you can find in the Bible or bits and pieces here, but there's lots of stuff. You're not going to find a single verse to back it up. Okay? Be honest. That's true. Don't ever be afraid of the truth. Lay it out there. Okay? And then you want to ask your friend... Do you believe what's found only in the Bible? In the Bible alone? Is that, is that what's the issue here? You believe what's only found in the Bible in the Bible alone? And I believe things that are not found in the Bible in the Bible alone. Isn't that really what is the issue here? I'm sure that we talk about a lot of different subjects, but that's really at the heart here. That's foundational, isn't it? And your friend will obviously agree with you. And that's now brings us to number seven. And that is... Number six is redirect. Sounds like the real problem is that I believe things that are not found in the Bible and you believe what's only found in the Bible in the Bible alone. Is that the case? Is that what's really at issue here? That's number six. Redirect. Redirect to Sola Scriptura. And now you want to ask the big question, number seven. Number seven, where in the Bible, in the Bible alone, does the Bible teach the Bible alone? Right? Because if it's not found in the Bible, it's unbiblical, right, Bob? Let me go over this again, Bob. If I believe only what's found in the Bible, or you believe only what's found in the Bible in the Bible alone, and I believe stuff that's not found in the Bible alone, the, what's really going on is you believe in a doctrine that's foundational for everything you hold called 
sola scriptura or the Bible alone. Do you hold to that doctrine or do you believe in stuff that's not in the Bible? Yeah. So Bob believes he holds to this doctrine. In fact, it's foundational for everything he believes. Why do you, Bob, believe that Jesus is God? Because the Bible says so. Why do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Because the Bible says so. I don't, that's not why I believe it. I believe it because that's the apostolic tradition. That's what the early Christians taught. And it is also, those things are also in the Bible. So then, the difference here, Bob, is that I believe, I hold to things, I, I have received the apostolic tradition, I hold to that, the, early, the teachings of the early church, but you are holding to only what you find in the Bible and the Bible alone. So what is really foundational for your, everything you believe, in fact, even the divinity of Jesus, the Trinity, whatever, What's actually primary to that and foundational is your doctrine, this one doctrine called the Bible and the Bible alone. So let me ask you then, where is that in the Bible? Because if it's not found in the Bible, it's unbiblical. And again, I highly recommend, write this down, we'll conclude with this and we'll go to a break. Where in the Bible and the Bible alone does the Bible teach the Bible alone? Where in the Bible and the Bible alone does the Bible teach the Bible alone? Because if it's not found in the Bible, it's unbiblical, right? Now, when Bob hears you say this, he's going to think you're crazy, okay? But if any of you have heard Scott Hahn's conversion story, you know this was a critical moment for him. He had worked through sola fide, faith alone, as a Protestant. All the seminary professors at the seminary he was going to, they'd all decided Martin Luther was dead wrong on sola fide. He had no, no interest in becoming a Catholic at that point. Sola fide, is, faith alone, is not a primary topic. Okay? So he was going along just fine as an evangelical, arguing with other evangelicals about Martin Luther and sola fide, but he wasn't moving in any direction in his you know, ecclesial position. But then when one student asked him, once he was a professor, Professor Hahn where in the Bible does the Bible teach the Bible and the Bible alone? Well, I don't know. 2 Timothy 3.16. Well, you know, that's not actually a defense of that text. Well, I'm sure there are other passages. But you see, don't you see this is the foundation of everything we hold to? If it's not found in the Bible and the Bible alone, it's unbiblical. And he said he drove home that night. First he told the student, that's a silly question. And then he drove home that night thinking, where in the Bible and the Bible alone does the Bible teach the Bible and the Bible alone? He got home. He got on the phone. Hello? He called all his professors from the seminary that taught him and asked them, where in the Bible and the Bible alone? Does the Bible teach the Bible alone? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, what do you mean? You know, 2 Timothy 3.16? Well, but that actually doesn't, you know, that doesn't really defend it. Well, it's the foundation of everything we believe, Scott. And he said, yeah, but what if the foundation for everything we believe is unbiblical? And that was a crisis moment for him. It jarred him, and he started thinking historically. He had to start thinking, what is this thing I call the Bible? Where did we get it? How do I know what books belong in it? Where did my Christian faith come from? And now the person is beginning to think historically. Cardinal Newman said, to know history is to cease being Protestant. He discovered that as he decided to study the history of the development of Christian doctrine as an Anglican. And as he went back into the early church and he read the fathers of the church and the early councils, he realized they weren't Anglicans. 
<laughs> so let's take a 15-minute break, and we'll come back. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.